0: If we're recording, I think. We are. So, Tom, go ahead.
1: Oh, okay, I'm Tom Kanaus. I am one of the uh, primary writers for Frog God Games. And uh, that's pretty much it.
2: <laughs> I'm Rob Conley. I write RPG materials under the bat addicts games. I primarily write sandbox settings and uh, supplemental materials for Judges Guild Waterland. I'm Tobias
3: Sturey, a.k.a. Owlbear. Um, I'm the lead developer for D20 Pro, virtual tabletop software for desktops, Windows, Mac, Linux.
4: I'm Mike Badalotto, Bad Mike. I am do customer service for Frog Games. I've been selling uh, books and games online since 1994, and I also co-founded and still running North Texas RPG Con. For, this will be our, our 11th year.
0: And we're and we're on. <laughs>
4: <laughs> and our topic tonight is is something that I'm absolutely unfamiliar about, and and from earlier talk, Tom Cadous is also unfamiliar about. So we'll be the idiots asking Rob and Albert uh, questions. Uh, apparently, our topic is uh, online gaming. Virtual tabletop play and theater of the mind using digital tools. All right,
3: uh, interesting. <clears throat> well, that explains my presence.
4: <laughs> well, well, uh, well although they really give me background, so so my the first game I played was Skype was a Skype game, and I, I haven't played. I've done some roll Di, or roll twenty, um, but I have never run a roll twenty, but. I've done Skype gaming, which was at the time was so revolutionary. It was unbelievable because you you could actually game with somebody in Australia and a guy in Canada, a guy in Georgia, another guy over here in Florida. Um, And we used a simple whiteboard to basically map out our progress and draw maps. And I suspect uh, from what I see online, that things have advanced quite a bit in the last uh, five, six years. Yeah. I, you know, my, my first experience with online gaming was very
3: similar, right? We used Skype, um, and we had a, an old laptop that um, had been donated by one of the other players, and our remote players all lived on that laptop. And they had their own chair, their own seat at the table, and a webcam that had a wide angle on it so they could see them, you know. Uh, we're using tactiles, so sort of like whiteboard, but it's a jigsaw puzzle style, um, so we could draw out maps that way. And most of the gaming was just theater of the mind. But I mean, when we went to get food, we brought them with us on the laptop. Um, it was pretty hilarious to you know, go out as a group and get food and, uh, and bring a, a laptop with somebody's face on it and you know, not actually order for them, of course. But it, it really made the whole experience resonate for us. And so we, we decided to start building um, hardware dedicated to making gaming work remotely. And that led me into the software space, uh, which is where I got involved with D20 Pro.
4: Well, oh, go go ahead, Rob. Sorry.
2: Um, my uh, I am still two of my best friends still are from high school. I was a senior; they were uh, sophomores, and we gamed ever since. And uh, throughout the '90s, we played face to face a lot with friends, we usually had a group of about four to five people. And then, uh, my friend Dwayne, uh, joined the Marine. So he was separated geographically. So I, uh, came upon this technology called, this software called Fantasy Ground and Voice Over Internet. You know, this is around 2000. And voice, inter- voice Over Internet became a thing. And so I uh, learned how to use it and I actually bought copies for all my friends a license key so they can download it and install it for themselves and we started gaming online because we were all physically separated and this was a way for us to game together. And ever since then I kept up on it and it has Expanded, and I would say it's my primary source of gaming. Because all my friends seem to live everywhere else.
0: Yeah, the the desire for
3: gamers to stay in touch has really um grown. I mean, we've always had it, right? So you, you form bonds with your gaming group, you never want to break, and well hopefully you don't want to break, sometimes they break up, obviously. Um but the uh when when I first entered into the scene, it was purely from a hardware standpoint. I'd been building touch technology and um, and went to a Gen Con in 2010, I think. Maybe maybe it was 2009. Um, and ran into Doug over at Fantasy Grounds and Matt Morton, who was uh, running D20 Pro at the time. Um, and I was showing map tools um, just because that was the utility I was using to do everything. and the response at gencon was just so insane to these people like wow with this tool i could get the band back together it was you know this whole blues brother vibe and i don't think i talk i've gone to gencon every year since and demoed every year and i have to say that first year i talked to more people who felt inspired and interested and you know and have watched the industry grow since then uh, with you know, Fantasy Grounds constantly improving, uh, D20 Pro going through its complete reincarnation, uh, Roll 20 becoming a thing. Um, you know, when before when they first started out, they were just talking about, oh, we're going to build a technology on top of Google's uh, Drive system, and you know, now it's a pretty solid piece of a kit as well. And then there's just a slew of others that have come and you know persisted because the desire is there for us to maintain our groups.
4: Look, if you look at it, this, is the modern world, right? I mean, my gaming group is scattered to the winds, and uh, it's it's hard. It's it's becoming harder in our society, I guess, because there's so many demands in our society. It's not it's not just um, the different things we had going on in 1980, eighty one. It's also you know all the demands of present society. But it's just hard to get a weekend together where everybody can actually physically sit down together in a room and game. And I know I haven't been able to do that very often, probably quarterly as much as we could do it. But once we started Skype gaming, uh the group I had, it was a member in Australia, Canada, uh, Florida, um, Alabama and Missouri. And we were just amazed at how often we were able to game using Skype, whereas, you know, we some of us didn't have sit down groups available and the other ones of us that did, we couldn't meet weekly or even sometimes even monthly. Yeah, I I just recently joined
3: a actual Face-to-face tabletop game, and we've been the group's been technically together for just about two months, and we've played once successfully, due to scheduling conflicts, uh, you know, weather, you know, all of the all the usual, right? And um, yeah, the the virtual space really enables that, and the the fact that. We're already all, gamers in general, are experienced in the idea of imagining their world. You can do 90% of your remote gaming with dialogue. And where the tools come in is to help sort of keep the flow going, right? So there are visual tools, which you can take or leave as you see fit. Um, That's, you know, the Fantasy Ground maps, D20 Pro maps, so on and so forth. Um, Initiative tracking, all of the, Various bells and whistles are all optional. The main thing is having a good way to communicate and making sure that people are comfortable talking to each other because then you've got your experience. like The majority of it is right there.
2: Now, the thing that people need to keep in mind, that a little history lesson, you know, back when, uh, you know, PC started hitting in 1980 with ESR, one the Apple Twos, you know, right alongside the uh, people trying to adapt D and D and other role playing computer. You look in old Traveler magazines; they have Traveler software. If you look in Dragon magazines; they have D and D software, and then that's when you, you had Adventure, and then Men- Adventures involved into Mushes and Muds, Rogue, and stuff like that. But the problem with those games is, is that they substituted the human referee or a software algorithm, and while fun to play and eventually became gorgeous to look at, they became something different. They they supplanted what we were trying to do with tabletop.
0: Exactly. Uh,
2: But the difference between Fantasy Ground, Roll20, D20 Pro, and all those, they do not supplant what we do with face-to-face gaming. They complement. Basically, a bunch of smart people found out that through chat, and then later voice over internet, a dice roller, and maybe a few other utility and a whiteboard. You can do use the exact same book, the exact nearly the exact same prep as uh, as you do on a to face game. There is an extra step and that extra step, if you want to show anything, you'll have to get it scanned into the computer or take a photo of it because that's the only way you're going to show it. You're not physically there, so you can't just hold it up. But other than that, you can freely switch back and forth. In fact, you know, there was a, a period of time back around 2011, you know, between 2010 to 2012, my, role, my fantasy ground group will get together at least once a year face-to-face to run the same thing that we were running on fantasy ground, but in person. And one year we even rented a hotel uh, uh, conference room and used that for our, our gaming. But it it really it really, if anything, what's going to, which, I think it, it saved tabletop role playing, uh, back in, uh, in the in the late 2000s and. And it continues to uh be a huge benefit because it, it enormously expands the opportunity for anybody to game together. So now at low nom- no matter it doesn't matter if you, where you are geographically as long as you can be up at the same time which could be a problem with different times you can game. Yeah, when
0: when
3: asked by folks about the GM prep time, right? That's a pretty common question. Uh, the GM, of course, bears the burden in, in every uh, gaming scenario, whether they're running a module or building something from scratch, you know, a lot of that onus is on them. Um, the The most common question I get from a GM is, well, what is using this software or using a software package add to my prep time? And I usually tell them it's, you know, um, about 10%, right? Depending on how how much they want to lean on the software, no matter which package it is, this ends up being pretty true. Um, if If it takes you a week to get your game together, it's going to take you you know a week and a few days to get it all put together. Um, the nice thing though, is with with the digital uh, representation of your content, you only do that once. You put the content in, you've got it, you can return to it. If um you know, if you want to have your players go back to some place they've been before, it's very easy to just pull that content back up and reuse it. Uh, whereas I always found that what what led me to using map tools originally uh, when I you know started doing a virtual tabletop stuff, was my complete lack of desire to redraw places that they'd been over and over again because they wanted to the the group I was with. You know, I was running for it at the time, really wanted to meticulously spelunk dungeons. Um, they wanted that uh, move 60 feet, what do we see? Move 60 feet, what do we see? You know, Kind of experience. And, um, and I just got tired of redrawing it. So this way I could draw it once and just revisit it over and over again. Um, and it just sped things up. So gameplay was faster, which meant that we had more immersion as well. Right, so it's not okay. Hold on, while I draw out this room again, and somebody who's sitting with their home map, you know, that they're drawing, says, "No, you drew that wrong," and they're catching me being lazy about, you know, I trimmed off five feet on one wall or something. Um,
2: yeah, so. basically, the way I view it, there's four level. There's four kinds of. First of all, whatever it is you do now, you can do still do for your. Uh, uh, online uh, use Roll20, use D20 Pro uh, session, the only, like I said, the only change that you'll have to make is somehow anything you want to show, get it into your computer. Now with that being said, there's four levels. Vertical law, your verbal, your your theater of mind's referee. Well, you're not going to have to do much of anything because theater of mind is theater of mind. The only thing you'll lose is uh, in part is uh, the the acting that you do as part of your uh, refereeing. And even that can be overcome as somehow you guys all set up a video chart. Second is uh, you use prepared content. You use a module. You want to run Tumor Horrors or whatever. So you need a scanner for that if you don't have a digital copy of the of the work in question. Next thing is you draw your own. Okay, so a lot of so if you hand draw your own, you're going to need a scanner and scan it in. But you can still continue using hand drawn content. But if you use uh, computer tools like a campaign cartographer, Adobe Illustrator, or uh, Corel then you save yourself the step of printing. You just save it to an image, and it's there and available. And last, what a lot of people don't consider is you can use Google Image Search. There's a ton of stuff, and unlike trying to make a product or share something you own in it, this is all private. So you can just use, you can just see what's on online, download it, and use it to your heart content, and you're not going to get in trouble for it.
3: Yeah, one of the things...
2: Oh, God, sorry, go ahead. No, no, and and then la, then the last thing I want to mention, I am a miniatures DM. I like using miniatures for the variety of reasons why, not all of them, just because I'm hard of hearing, so using miniatures is it, it's far easier for my players to relate to what they're doing if they use miniatures as part of their description, because I can see it as opposed to hear it. If you're a miniature DM, then you're going to have to spend a little time getting a collection of a uh, token now back in 2007 when i start to, started this that was a tough thing to do now it's 2018 to oh, it's 11 years later you can go to Roll 20 i don't know if d20 pro has a, a store but i'm most of them do now i know fantasy ground and you can buy these and like i know for Roll 20 you can download what you buy there is a zip file and use it elsewhere. So you're not locked into their platform, which is a good thing. And uh, because you shouldn't be. So uh, what I have done over the years, it's like I, I've i shown pictures of it on my blog, but I have a collection of physical miniatures that I've collected over 40 years of gaming. Now I have a similar collection of tokens that I use.
3: Yeah, we, we definitely have a marketplace. Um, You know, this is... That's been true since before I came on board. Um, you know, so they've D20 Pro. I believe the first version launched in 2006, and they've had a marketplace since day one. Working with Devin Knight and a bunch of other vendors as well. Um, and Devin Knight has this library of like 400 tokens that are just free for anyone. Roll 20 has them. Fantasy Ground has them. We have them. Um,
2: oh yeah, I highly recommend De- yeah. Devin Knight's uh, token.
3: Yep, and then uh, the other thing. So you had mentioned Google Image Search. This is something that we try to make sure folks are aware of as well. Google Image Search works extremely well, um, especially if you can do if you if you're using Chrome, for instance. If you right click on any image, whether it's coming from uh, Pinterest or you know Reddit or wherever you're you're finding the source, and do just a a copy image rather than a save image, you won't hit the same level of stops and whatnot. Uh, for the content. To facilitate that, I know that we have this, and I think Fantasy do, Fantasy Grounds does, I don't know if it's in Roll20 because I haven't checked recently, but basically you can create maps, um, tokens, all that straight from image sources in the application, right? So you just, it goes into your copy buffer on your computer, and you just create a map. You never even save it to file until it's in the format that you need for your map with any cropping you want and things like that. So, you know, like the, I think the very first game I ran for my group using uh, D20 Pro, we ended up with a, uh, a weakened dog who, uh, had monk levels, um, who, you know, was just this, this image of this very large, uh, slobbery dog that, uh, like St. Bernard type dog that one of the players had found. We had, uh, Antonio Banderas is one of the character images, you know, and we had, um, We had several of the uh, classic D&D cartoon characters as uh, as character tokens that people had just pulled in and brought in, you know, live during the session. And it's just it's really kind of neat to be able to take whatever your inspiration is and actually use that content to help represent your character. as a GM, it's really helpful because if you, you know, if you have a a wide open world and your players go exploring and you want to build new characters on the fly because they are interacting with shopkeeper and you want to give them some sort of personality that's going to be memorable, you know, this becomes something that you think will be reoccurring. You can very quickly on the fly, build these out with these modern tools. Um, it does take, you know, there's a learning curve to all this stuff. Um, as a GM, my, first suggestion to folks with the digital tool is to spend some time dry running stuff on your own. So that way you can hit some of the snags when your players aren't around and figure out how to do it. Um, And I know all of us, all of the folks in the VTT communities have open communities where you can talk to folks either by forums or through Discord, like we run a Discord channel as well as our forums. And so you can question experienced GMs, experienced players about how to do a thing or you know what they like to do in order to sort of keep that flow going. Anytime you introduce digital tools, the main thing to remember is flow. Um, if your tool interrupts your flow, then it's not a very successful tool.
4: Uh, let, let me redirect or, or change the subject just a little bit. Yeah, so well, let's say I'm doing, uh so so i'm gaming face to face and that's in conventions i usually do a lot of face obviously we're doing face to face gaming conventions and doing it at at home uh what are some tools i can use in an actual face to face game uh let's say i'm running a game with just a table full of people either at a convention or at at my warehouse um what are what are some easy to use tools that i could that would help uh help the game
3: well um not to like toot my own horn but d20 pro actually works really well in a face to face game
4: there we um, go, boom, yeah. You
3: know, it's uh, because you run it from your own desktop or your laptop or whatever, right? All of that data is right there, uh, whether you've got internet or not. And so I'll actually, like when I go to, a, when I go to Gen Con, I go to this, um, some of my friends who are in the industry, we only see each other that one time a year. And so we game and I'll bring a campaign with me or that we've been playing and I'll run sessions off my laptop um, at the hotel room I'm doing everything on my side. They're moving stuff, miniatures normally, you know, on our tactiles. And then I'm just making sure I record it at the end of the day for position, you know, when we're done for the next year. Um, Alternately, we could be running it, uh, we could be running it to where uh, they're connecting with a shared display. And you can do this with a lot of them, a lot of the VTTs out there. It's just a concept that a lot of people don't think about. When we're playing face to face, we have a shared space that all the players interact with, right? We've got our map space, um, where we've got our tokens out, you know our miniatures, all that kind of stuff. If you run a single player client with a shared display, whether that's a monitor tipped on its side or even one just facing all the players, and the GM is running their GM session on their view, you end up with that tabletop experience very quickly with digital tools.. Um, You know, just to, and then to to move past that, uh, Hero Lab actually has a number of um, GM tools that are available to allow you to sort of to manage. And um, they sort of reverse the model that we use. And in our model, the GM is authoritative and players push changes to the GM. Uh, If we're connecting through network with Hero Lab, you could have people with tablets with their characters on them and the gm is going to see your initiative roles uh ability usages spells you know whatever right and all that's going to get tracked to the gm's uh, status and be resumable but the gm doesn't have any control over the player characters in that scenario it's the they push to the gm what they've done and the gm says yay or nay at that point but you know the things are expended um, um that's more minutia, though
2: I'm going to take a little bit of a contrary view, <laughs> except for a, one exception, except for an, there is a major exception, which could be expanded on, but it isn't. But in general, I have not found uh, digital tools at the face-to-face table to be useful. Now, digital technology is useful for preparing for the table, being able to set up things in Word for Windows and pr- print it out. Now. What I do is I learned how to make good summary sheets and, you know, really good paper presentation documents. And using my computer to do that is uh, a real godsend. But for actually sitting down, even with a tablet, it, it's been surprisingly disappointing. For one, for, for example... I have this program called Goodreader on my iPad. It is absolutely yeah. the best PDF reader for any tablet software out there. However, to use it, and I have all my RPG manuals uh, stored on it, but because it's hard, even with the bookmarking, to use it as a reference during actual play. It's just not as fast as having cheat sheet or a well-indexed, you know, an indexed book. And uh, I can just flip through a rulebook a lot faster than I can on my tablet. Okay, now,
4: I, I'm, I'm, like, Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Robin. I'll, I'll, I'll follow up when you get through.
2: Okay. Now, the major our exception it's a program called The Crawler's Companion for the DC RPG. The reason why it's a major, because it very clever, it is a reference. It is a build, an active reference. And not only that, when it comes to random t- tables, it actually functions as a tool and it's very useful. And the, and the killer thing that makes it useful is not that you can say give me a critical hit and show you the result. They have this mode where you show, you see a number grid, okay? You can have the player still rolls the dice, tells you gets a twenty five, you hit that twenty five, and it tells you what the result is. Which is way faster than trying to use the rulebook, book, especially for those of you who are familiar with the DC RPG. It has a lot of damn table. So this utility is so if I were to run a DCP RPG session, I would have my laptop with crawler's companion running at the same time. And other systems who had any kind of table or reference could benefit from an app like this. Unfortunately, using the rulebook directly as a PDF uh, is not as good because again, the swiping is not as fast as page flipping, and the the you know the network of you know people sitting there with character sheets in front of them, you know, with the whole network together um you know i i just not have been impressed
4: i I'm, i'll be a little bit of a um of of a anti anti rob Conley here but i i i had to say because rob and i are pretty much the same generation and i i started running games off my laptop at college because i when i typically run games at home i have literally two gigantic carriers full of uh material that i use and i've gotten to where i can flip through that and I, I got tired of the, carrying that carrying around to conventions i started loading everything on my laptop and i think like anything else it just takes getting used to i, I got to where i was really good at running D adventures on the laptop using pdfs um it, it just took time though i it wasn't something i was used to doing and like rob said sometimes it's easier to flip through the book and just find because you know where it is in the book but once you get used to using the laptop. I think it becomes easier and easier the more you use it because I I got to where now I actually prefer to run adventures off a laptop PDF that, rather than the physical copy. Uh, no, because I, I have stacks of stuff all around me, and I, what I'll inevitably do is stick something in a stack and put something else on top of it, and then spill a drink on that, and then throw that in a box. And then by the time I have to look up something to reference it, I can't do it. Whereas if I'm on the laptop, I just got you know I could just scroll up or scroll down or click click this or click that, and boom, it's there. Uh so I, I think it's one of those things you just takes getting used to. You got if you get used to it I I I am I was surprised at how easily it was to run adventures using the uh laptop.
2: Well, the thing is I I kind of I I kind of agree with you because like I said remember I said I use Word to print out cheat sheets, okay? If I had a uh if I if I took the time to organize the PDF of such cheat sheet sheets for my RPG then I can see my tablet or laptop being that much useful. And certainly when I'm running Roll20, I'm sitting there. I got three monitors in front of me right now. You know, I, I use them. You know, I got stuff open all over the place. But what people, what I also have is I also have a pile of cheat sheets in front of me. For example, I'm running a Traveler classic traveler campaign, and I have a binder full of cheat sheets that I continually flip through during the game, because it's faster than trying to look it up. However, I still have a PD, uh, uh, Adobe, uh, reader up there with some of the traveler books. Because if I need to read them, read the actual rules, the entire procedure, it's certainly easier to go up there and just click on it for that. So it, it's a bit of a dance. And if you learn the right moves, it can be, I can, it can be a benefit.
3: Yeah mickey says why not use both and you know that's that's absolutely the case right it's um something to keep in mind is like the pdfs are really powerful in the sense that you can have a whole lot of that data in a very you know all at your fingertips but a lot of so sort of like the the gentleman who's talking about the control f earlier the am um, i don't know maybe a pox box is gender neutral um but the uh <laughs> the um being able to use the system that you have um, is really important. If you're working with PDFs, using a reader that lets you apply bookmarks is going to be nearly equivalent to what my own library looks like, which is a bunch of yellow and red and orange tabs sticking out of the books in, in every direction that's not the binding, um, you know, from all the places where well, these are the things that I want to be able to thumb to quickly. Um, all of that, I was able to translate into bookmarks inside of a PDF and then organize in the bookmark browsing so I could actually have all my notes and be able to get to the rule and the context surrounding said rules um, very quickly. I, there's something nice about the the physical feel though, you know, and that's hard to to get away from. You know, I love having my source books. The I, I've got my stack of classic Gerps. Literally to the left of me at all times, and I've got all my Rollmaster uh, individual cards, um, you know, from from first edition, because that's a that always reminds me how you can just have so much data, and it's it's very rich, but it's almost it's so much that it's hard to get the right thing without thumbing through the giant stack until you find it. Right, this is where your cheat sheet for Traveler comes in. Um,
2: well, you have to internalize it and then exactly. only only dive to the book when it's like, like well, we had a question about belt, uh, you know, mining the asteroid belt. I'm not going to memorize that. So we pulled up the uh, PDF and we all looked at it while we figured it out what we wanted to do. Yeah. You know, we needed a PDF, the rules then.
1: One one thing you guys mentioned earlier uh, when you're talking about how the uh, system works is when so like say a player says there and I've never used any of these systems so I'm even more dinosaur than bad Mike is but so say a player wants to cast a spell and, you know, and they're playing five E or whatever system it is and the spell lasts for five minutes will that like somehow translate into the GM screen so he will have or or she will have some kind of an idea. How yeah. long it would last, or and that sort of sort of thing, or,
3: yeah, that's that's where we start getting into the automation options for the for virtual tabletops. Um, you know, the the most basic automation for that is tracking duration. Second step is tracking an actual template. So if you've got like a stinking cloud, right, that lasts for a number of rounds, you want to know where that cloud is um, on the map and be able to track that and have it disappear when the duration's over. Um, or at least notify the GM that the duration is ticking down, right? Um, you can go beyond that. And uh, at this point, I know that, that we we put out our uh, our programming uh, system, a whole scriptable system for spell effects and everything. And I know that um, I believe that Fantasy Ground has something similar now as well. And I think Roll20 is working on something. There's some hack stuff there that's working pretty well, but basically what this lets you do is go through and truly automate the entire experience if you want to. So if you wanted to throw a fireball, it's gonna roll your saving throws and calculate damage and all of that. And the main thing is to be very careful. This brings us actually full circle back to that discussion about where d d games started showing up on the computer space. Uh, you know, with Tandy and all the rest of it. And, and they started to lose the feel of D&D because it was a digital GM. And so you got to be careful when you're doing this automation not to go too far into the video game space and still leave the controls in the GM's hands. But yeah, you can automate all that stuff. You can track your spell effects. Um, and you get to choose at what level you want to do it, right? So if you just want to track duration and an area of effect or duration and targets, then do that, and don't worry about letting it do damages, and let players roll, you know, via whatever mechanism you're using for your game.
2: So, so you got several different kinds of levels here. That uh, this is my perspective on the question. First of all, you can just use the whiteboard, the dice roller, and the. Uh, actually, you only have to use the dice roller. You can just use the whiteboard and and whatever you're using for communication. And the players have character sheets, when they roll dice, they're actually rolling dice. Now, I recommend using at least the native dice roller. Not because it's better or anything, because part of what makes tabletop rolling fun is being able to see each other's roll. It's a shared communal experience. If you're rolling dice behind the camera, you lose that. Mm-hmm. So it, it when somebody rolls a natural one and they go, oh, man, he fumbled, or rolls a natural 20, they all cheer and, yay, you crit, or groan when it's the DM doing that. And uh, so that, I would recommend considering using whatever dice roll. And then beyond that, it's like what uh, um, Owlbear was saying, that I guess the next step beyond that, you have a character sheet and has fields that you you type in, but it doesn't do anything more than allow you to type in an 18 for strength and 45 for the number of hit points or whatever the system got. Then the next step with that is that they put buttons and other automation, so when you hit an attack roll for a melee weapon, it knows to add in your strength bonus and gives you a proper roll and says, okay. If I have if I have a plus two strength bonus and I'm attacking with a melee weapon using D and D, uh later edition DD, I'm gonna roll a D20 plus two. Mm-hmm. And then the the last level of automation is where you're still doing that, but you would do something like look on the map, select the orc that you're attacking. You, then you click the button to roll the hit. It will tell you that you hit the orc, roll damage, apply the hit point automatically to the orc, and then it will actually probably change something on the token to indicate it if you killed the orc. So that is the last level of animation, so to speak. There's also, some anim- there's also levels of automation for the map, the whiteboard side of things. You know, the basic whiteboard being you just, an image and the next level is you have an image with tokens on it and usually you have layers at that point where the map resides on the background layer and the token uh, resides on the front ground, front layer so that you can't you know move accidentally move the map while you're trying to click on a token and then you get into what like rule 20 and other uh systems have where you can do things like dynamic lighting or Fog of War now Fog of War is pretty common these days so what Fog of War is is you overlay, the, on the referee's size your entire map turns gray and then you can use the drawing tools either to reveal an area which to you becomes clear now to the player while Fog of War is on, the whole map is black so if, but once the GM reveals an area only that part of the map reveals and it's awesome particularly for dungeon adventures because unlike the only thing equivalent is either building out things as you you adventure in dwarven forge or using a whiteboard a literal a true whiteboard with a pen or a grid and drawing the map as they as they go through the the dungeon and then the next level, which Roll Twenty and other companies are working on, is stuff like dynamic lighting. And what dynamic lighting does is, you take that map that you put in Roll Twenty, you draw over it again, but it tells the uh, the the server which where the walls are, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And then the player's token will have light. You can tell the you can tell, you can give the player's token light sources, so you don't have you technically don't have to use fog of war. The map will know will automatically reveal stuff as you move through the map. And uh, I it, it actually can become and since each player has their own light sword and each player has their own view, it is quite possible and I actually had this happen, where players get separated in the dungeons and they can't find each other and a death result because there's some player who they hear screaming in the darkness, I'm dying! I'm dying! And they're trying to move their token around trying to find this guy, and they couldn't find him. The downside of using dynamic lighting or some of the more advanced feature, it takes more prep time to prepare a map. So when I use it, it's only for it's only for like dungeons where they're going to be at a while. For example, I did it for the barrel maze. I actually redrew the barrel maze in roll 20 and added all the little walls. So that dynamic lighting was working, but if it's some cave, you know, ten room, com- ten room uh, cave complex that's part of a random encounter, I'm not going to go and do. Di- I'll just use Fog of War and be done with.
3: It. Yeah, the way that we handle our dynamic lighting is um, we we blended our Fog of War system with our lighting model, so that way when you apply light sources to tokens they reveal in the fog of war zones. And what we've done is instead of just saying fog of war is on and the whole map goes black, we we built the system that uses zones. So that way, this is equivalent to when I'm playing on a tabletop and I'm using sheets of paper and revealing sections of the map. Um, a zone is a toggleable area that when it's toggled, light sources can reveal in it. And the reason we did it was to help control flow, right? So again, the GM. Um, So just to sort of give you an anecdote, I was running a game um, in in another system, and I won't identify which one for this, and and we didn't have a zone system, it was just all Fog of War, or not all Fog of War, and the players walk into a room, they see a giant red dragon, and the sorcerer immediately throws Disintegrate at it. uh, Before I've even finished my description, he's like, no, I cast Disintegrate now, you know, and it's like all right well all right roll for initiative all right you won the initiative and there goes your disintegrate and you critted and there went your plot hook and the um surprisingly good red dragon who was hiding out from all of the others um you know was now a pile of ash um which led to a lot of uh hijinks and whatnot for the rest of the campaign but the uh what i basically got to a point where I realized that we needed to have a way to control the flow like we would in tabletop normally with the, with these tools. And so when we built out the new Fog of War system for D20 Pro, we built it with zones that you can toggle on and off, and you turn them on to let people explore them, turn them off, and it stays black, right? Um, and so then if you've got a light source, it'll reveal with walls and all the rest of that kind of stuff, and then you can do alpha blending and other fanciness to create like flickering torches and Additive lighting and all that kind of newfangled, you know, fun graphic stuff. Um, but
2: so it, your it, your dynamic lighting. I mean, if I am going up a ten foot corridor, how does how does the rooms on either side doesn't get displayed? With so light? we
3: have we have doors. Um, you know, we have door objects that you can toggle on or off. Um, if if the area at the far ends are not revealed, then the light won't actually reveal into those zones until you actually toggle the room on. So the example I usually use for this is um, we have this alley map. That's one of our default maps that ships with the product, right? And um, as the player explores in the alley, before the, the GM reveals the uh, the zombie horde in the alley, this gives the GM a chance to say, you know, as you enter the dark alley, you hear the sounds of bones scraping against stone and something soft and, and, you know, mushy, and then maybe red eyes peer from the darkness and then reveal and they say, oh my God, there's a whole horde of zombies in here um, in various states of decay. Um, the, you know, at which point you can pop into initiative or something else like that. Um, and again, it's, it's about the narrative and trying to make sure that the tools enhance the narrative rather than uh, something that you have to fight against. Um, and this isn't saying that the other systems don't provide something similar. I'm just giving you an example from where we're where what we're trying to do on our end. I can speak from my own experience, right? Which is we're trying to make sure that we can maintain that narrative, um, and and also just uh, talk about these kind of tools. So um, lighting is interesting because, as you pointed out, you had this player death that was a direct result of uh, players only have lighting that was unique to themselves. Uh, In a normal tabletop game, we all are seeing everything that's going on and there's a level of metagaming that happens no matter how good your group is. Um, Usually what happens is that when that player starts to tear off in a different direction, everybody's like, don't do that. You're being idiotic, stay with the group or, you know, whatever, Um, or they end up dead as your player did. Um, We offer the ability to do both So, you can either have public lights where everyone sees lights belonging to their party or to their team. So, all the players would see all the player lit areas. Or you can have individualized lights. And the idea of the original idea for individualized lights was for like vision. So, no player sees by my dark vision except for me, right? But I could see by your torch. That sort of thing.
1: Okay. So for the display that we're seeing here uh, in the chat room, is that like um, something that you would have to use for an adventure that's already loaded on D20 Pro or could you just grab something and scan it in and use it that way?
3: Yeah, you totally can scan it in. Um, Drawing in objects is, uh, we basically have a polygon drawing system. And so you just go in and draw in some light blockers and light is blocked. Worst case is you've got an image and you don't want to block any light. You just want to do fog of war. Um, There's two different modes, there's easy fog of war, which is basically you can reveal grid squares um, or hide grid squares. And the other one is the advanced fog of war, which is what you're seeing from the images I'm seeing from Tay. Um, And those use uh, the polygons and light sources from the characters and reveal as they explore. Um, When I was talking about sort of the prep time earlier, this is what I was talking about the extra like 10% time is sort of getting all your fire war objects in and map markers and stuff like
2: that. It's definitely in rule 22, you, you have to do some extra drawing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got to know where the light, it's got to know how to yeah, block I mean, light. You know? Well, I had,
3: So I, I'd actually written some algorithms and this, this has never seen the light of day. So, you know, um, you'll hear about some fun stuff, but it's not something that I'm pushing out anytime soon. But I wrote some algorithms to do analysis of a map. And so like in this last image you just posted, where you've got a clear color difference between the explorable areas and the not explorable areas, um, you could basically say color range this is my explorable region, and it just auto-draw your walls on things that weren't explorable. The problem is that as the quality of digital art assets for maps has increased, that kind of uh, image stuff is not usable. 90% Ninety percent of the time, um, so without getting into like um, Photoshop's uh, magic brush stuff, kind of level of uh, of uh, of algorithms, and hopefully we'll get back around to it. It's um, for anybody who's actually interested in this kind of stuff. What you're looking for is a watershed algorithm. It's uh, it's cool stuff, but it's it's not it's not light math, and you know. As gamers, we don't shirk from
4: math, but this is a couple of steps past that. Oh, I shirk from math. I I run <laughs> away from
2: them. <laughs> and and for those with experience, the, the amount of work you got to fiddle with the dynamic lighting, at least in Rule 20, that's what I have experience with. I'm not trying to be an oh, advocate yeah. for Rule 20, but it's just what I have experience with. It's about the same amount if you brought a set of Dwarven Forge to the, uh, to your face-to-face table. You know, yeah. people make it work. It's fast, but it is extra work. I lug it. You got to be able to, you got to, you have to have it organized so it's usable. It doesn't slow down the game, but you know, it looks great, you know, and, and, but when I even, I, I have Dwarven Forge as well, but I don't use, um, I don't use it all the time because it's overkill in some. And just like dynamic, it's the same with dynamic lighting. It's overkill in uh, some situations. And I'm posting a picture of what it looks like in one of my games. Nice.
3: Yeah, exactly. So, dynamic lighting. The nice thing about dynamic lighting, from an end user standpoint, right, is that whether it's Roll Twenty. or D20 Pro, you end up with, or map tools, you end up with the same end result look and feel from the player standpoint. Um, In Tay's pictures, the one with the green and the like the blue lines are actually showing the polygons that this is in a GM view where they're editing. Um, Oh, hey, (laughs) nice. Um, So now he's showing a GM view on the right or the left hand side and a player view on the right hand side. so the GM can see through and in the in the GM view, they're actually in the fog of war editing mode. That's why you see you see this as green. Um, because it's it's showing you where your walls are and things like that. But uh yeah, it's it's nice to have consistency so that way whether whichever tool you end up in, you get the you get expected behaviors. And this is where the technology isn't new, right? We've we've had this in this is where video games have crept into our virtual tabletops in a very happy way. Uh, games like Monaco really set a new tone for what is good dynamic lighting and shadow casting, and um, and so we've I know on our end, um, and I shouldn't say our end because at this point it's really just me. I'm our I'm our lead dev and our dev. Um, but when I had another guy working with me on this stuff as well, we together were working towards that kind of objective, right? Using what people expected as uh, <laughs> expected as uh, as the experience. Um, so just to just to sort of give a third example again, so that way um, that way Rob and I aren't sitting here like talking to products and whatnot. Map tool supplies a very solid. Um, fog-of-war system these days as well with uh, dynamic lighting. Um, our In D20 Pro, we do polygons that encapsulate places. In uh, map tools, it's more like um, spokes. So it's sort of like drawing a skeleton of the not ex- not visible areas. And so it's, a, it's sort of the opposite direction, but it's really an interesting mechanic as well. Um, they both have strengths and weaknesses. And then I don't know what it looks like in Roll20, to draw out your fog of war
2: um uh, yeah, when that, you draw a line it uh blocks light from both sides
3: yeah so that's that's like the map tools version then where you've got lines and if you so like for instance if you had um if you had an irregular rock that went floor to ceiling in a cavern you could either draw lines around the whole rock or you could draw like a star pattern out to the extremes of the rock and the nice thing about drawing the, the star pattern with that model is that you can whichever way you're facing the rock, you're gonna be able to see the art. Um, we do this for statues in D twenty pro, so that way when you approach a statue that's you know looming, it blocks you can hide behind it, but you can also see the art on the statue, you know, or columns or things. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's a this is again where I was talking about earlier. You gotta play with it, right? You gotta see play with it. Yeah, yeah with roll and,
2: twenty with roll twenty, I have to you'll lose the interior and i i generally draw just inside the interior so you can see at least some of the art but yeah that sounds like a better way of doing that
3: yeah it'll save you a lot of time actually um with a line model uh if you if you sort of do spokes you can actually do irregular shapes around the corners of like uh, rough passages and things like that um, very quickly using lines. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing at at Pex's shameless plug. Thank you for that. Um, so let's see what what more should we go into for these tools. So we've got we've talked about maps, 3D. obviously. Yeah, we could talk about 3D. Um, so it's a, the, it's, a, <laughs> it's a trap.
2: It's a trap. Go on first. You you probably have more to say since you're a developer.
3: No, no, it's fine. Actually, 3D is 3D is a trap. Um, it's a it's a very difficult place to go to. It's not impossible. Um, Dynamic Dungeons is a great example of a successful use of 3D. Um, they're doing animated maps, which ties into what Mickey just said. Um, Dynamic Dungeons is a Patreon um, that does top down animated maps. So they're full motion. They come as uh, MP4s or mp 4 m M4Vs, um, and then you play on top of them, right? And they're, they're pretty darn slick. Uh, they're, they are 3D. Uh, the downside is that because they're, they're truly 3D, not orthographic, they're actually perspective, you can't actually take adjacent map tiles and put them together. Right? This is where you start to get into the trap. 3D, is, 3D offers you a lot of capabilities but can also backfire on you depending on the method of delivery. Um, there's been a number of uh, 3D Virtual Tabletop projects, um, including a live project you know, with a virtual tabletop, or 3D Virtual Tabletop is the name of the product, um, that and Tabletop Simulator, where you can flip the table in case you didn't like that role. Um, you know, those, they all, face, uh, they all face various obstacles. Tabletop Simulator has gotten a lot better over the years, but it used to be almost impossible to accurately place your objects. Um, you know, now it's got good snapping, and if you spend the prep time and understand how to do it, then then you can uh, then you can actually get a virtual tabletop in tabletop simulator that works as you know as you would expect. Um, 3D virtual tabletops clean um, and is definitely moving further further ahead, but their assets are predominantly still just 2D art. Um, mapped into a 3D space with a few 3D tokens starting to crop up now. Um, and then there was a table, was it Tabletop Connect? The one, well, anyway, Fantasy Grounds bought up a, a Kickstarter project that was floundering, that was really promising. Um, and they've been working on that for the last few years towards getting a 3D Fantasy Grounds together. Um, I'm not sure where they're at at this point. Um, I haven't seen any updates recently, but the, um, With Tabletop Connect, he had a lot of really interesting drawing tools designed using prefabs. In 3D, prefab is a collection of objects that piece together, make a thing. So you could have a um, stone tile corridor with brick walls and torches every other column, right, or that sort of thing. A lot of ingenious things in that product to make it so you could customize it, but you still were limited based off of the available 3D models. Uh, it's sort of like actually it's a good analogy to the physical space is dwarven forge right
2: dwarven oh man forge, you stole my line go on no
3: sorry yeah it's just <laughs> uh i i may have approached dwarven forge about this exact thing a while ago um but the, basically with dwarven forge right you you buy the pieces and you can make your map with those pieces but that limits your your piece selection
2: can That's i chime in can i chime yeah, in at this yeah point? go ahead go ahead so i want to Show you guys this. Gonna take a minute uh this is an image of one of my more elaborate dwarven forge uh settings. Whatever. Do it.
0: You can do it. Get in there.
2: Okay. So this is a layout of the central part of the city state and the invincible overlord. And the thing in order to do this, I had to take my map of the invincible, you know, my digital map of the city state and overlord Jorvin forge pieces and try to figure out what's the most representative layout because I can't do it exactly how it's drawn. I only got, as you, if you look closely at the various elements of this image, I, there's a lot of repeated pieces. And this is why the problem with uh, virtual tabletop that are 3D, it's the Dwarven Forge problem, is that you're limited, your selection is limited to what you can place in the setting of the 3D uh, environment. And most critically, I can't make those Dwarven Forge pieces. Now, I could go to Hertz Art and probably get pretty darn close. But it's labor, intensive. This is not a practical thing to do. It will actually become my hobby if I pers- went down the, the Hertz Art path and started casting Dwarven Forge pieces myself. And the same with 3D modeling. It's People who are decent at 3D modeling, it's kind of like their hobby. It's not a trivial thing to do. While a flat image, somebody can do a chicken scratch that's perfectly usable in a session and just scan it in, and that's all you need. So that's, that's why I call 3D a trap, because you're always going to be limited the same way that you would by buying a collection of Dwarven Forge. You can only use it the pieces you got. And if you need a different fl- piece, well, you're either going to have to wait for somebody to make it, or you're going to have to buy it, but it's always never going to be as flexible as drawing it on a piece of paper, scanning it in, and showing it a player. So I think it's going to be a niche taste. Uh, it's going to find some specific application, particularly for dungeons, mm-hmm. which kind of have a regular layout already. But as far as being, I don't think it'll ever supplant what D20 Pro is doing, Roll20, or ground because they're just too too flexible in what they do
3: so the the direction that we because 3d is important to the virtual tabletop space um it's not something that's i don't feel like we're ready there like the market isn't exactly ready for it either um but the the um the system that we've been messing with and working with behind the scenes on our side is a hybrid, right? Where we actually run a very traditional 2D um, art-based tabletop with 2D slash 3D tokens and the select 3D assets, right? So you want to have, for instance, take this, the city square, right, that you built out. This is an important component for your world. So you built out this 3D experience for it that would be a thing that was in your spit in your tool chest for that experience. Your general maps maybe are 2D built on the fly, built when you need them, or even just you know built normally and ahead of time. And then just reserving 3D for things that need that extra impact. The advantages though to 3D for a virtual tabletop is the ability to have a system that actually um, understands up-down elevations and uh, and shapes in a three-dimensional way. Um, when you cast a fireball, it's not a cone of damage, it's a circle. You know, it's a sphere of damage, right? Um, that That's interesting. And I've definitely played with people who will try to make me sit there and calculate the radius based off of their elevation and their footprint on the 2D map to say, no, you missed me because, you know, <laughs> because of I was outside of the radius at this elevation.
0: I'm like, ah, oh,
3: you are right, but you've now sucked the life out of this scene by, by forcing us to sit here and calculate radius. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, so again, this is sort of, this is a chance to, 3D offers an opportunity to, to handle rules like that or when people want it. Yeah, exactly. Um, sorry, the Euclidean mathematics. Um, <clears throat> so, the, the place where I see 3D being interesting is, there, is a, there are two things that I wanna quickly talk on. There's the, for 3D software, there's the ability to programmatically generate objects based off of some rules right this is where modern ai gets really interesting and we can very quickly say it's got it's made of stone it does this blah, blah blah and actually have a thing that looks like part of a corridor or part of a valley um the that's interesting from the computer side but it's still a ways out in terms of being fully functional there are um Alternatives to Dwarven Forge that are out there now, as of, as of the past six months, which are these modular kits that let you convert your stone corridor into a uh, internal building corridor, you know, and and various things like that. Um, I, you know, VR is VR. Sorry, uh, Tador said in in channel, you know, merging 3D tabletops with VR, I would rather, like personally, I feel like AR holds a lot more opportunity for the virtual tabletop than VR. Um, But that's because I believe, I believe that it's more palpable to have a system that allows you to still interact with your space. So that way, if you need to get your reference book out, your hard copy, and use digital tools simultaneously, you don't have to take your headset off and miss whatever's happening.
2: Um, well, I my bet, I think that we're going to, as far as digital technology, we're going to see two parallel threads. The work you're doing, which virtual tail top sitting in front of a monitor. The other, which is people are doing more and more, but there isn't like products that you can just buy. You have to yeah. kind of cobble it together. But it's virtual, but surface computing. Yeah. Surface computing, um, I think. In the next decade is going to be a thing. So what you would what you will have, my prediction is one of two things either the surface itself will be cheap or they'll make the surface a flexible uh, monitor that you can roll out onto any flat surface play on, and that they will have and this kind of runs into the Dwarven forge problem, but you have tokens that will interact with surface kind of have that with tablets already with those toys that I don't know exactly how they work but you get Pokemon to know what the app already knows that the Pokemon is there on your tablet surface but through a combination of that you can have like a and fifth edition module you don't have to do any of those range calculations because you just put it on there and there's a demo that's floating around where a bunch of people in Brazil I believe it believe made a fourth edition uh active surface but it there, was really slick and really easy to use yeah
3: the um so the stuff that we were doing with map tools uh we were using um the very first table that i showed was a rear projection table using uh, ir cameras to perceive the tokens on the surface and it could read the glyphs on the bottom of the tokens and know who it was and what it could do and stuff like that um And it was just, it just wasn't, it was price prohibitive. You know, the, a 40 inch table like that was like (laughs)
5: $10,000.
3: And, and I couldn't ship it to you. I'd have to drive it to you because it was delicate and fragile and who you're going to trust to, you know, not knock things out of alignment. So that wasn't really a, a a product that could go to market, right? Um, The tables that we take to Gen Con are, are full touch tables and they can actually take tokens on them as well. But so something we encountered in the digital tabletop space that I think is very quickly overlooked when you're talking about physical pieces on a digital surface with surface computing is one of the best advantages to a digital game surface is the ability to zoom in and out and scroll around. You know, so, oh, you can actually see further than our current map scale. Well, let's just zoom out and you can see the rest of your view cone or your view radius. Um, or um, it's an open world map. You know, we're in town, so we'll zoom way out, scroll over here, zoom back in, that kind of thing. Um, when you have tokens on the board, as soon as you scroll the map, even not, not even talking about zoom, you get into all sorts of problems. The tokens stay where they are because they're physical. Right. And, and then when you get to um, when you get into zooming, it's even worse because now you're talking about not only distance between tokens changing, but also this, you know, where is the point of contact with the token in the table in relation to the, their digital presence,
0: right?
2: Well, I think, I don't know how much this is relevant to tabletop role playing, but I know for board games tactile feel is kind of important. What what Absolutely. made what made virtual tabletop so compelling the few times I tried it wasn't the tabletop role-playing possibility, but I played some board games, and I really like being able to manipulate the pieces for, like, Axis and Allies, or the, 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 the... Actually, the longest series of games I played was a game, Rampage, where you play monsters, you know, movie yeah, monsters. Yeah. And... You know, and I played it once in the real world and I, and it, everything I knew from that one playthrough worked fine in virtual tabletop because I was actually moving the pieces around. So, uh, but when it comes to virtual tabletop, I think you're going to have, I think you got a good point there. I think it's going to be a bit of a boat. I think the board games are going to lead more to a token because they don't need to zoom the maps out. They just, you, you know, you're going to. The surface offers the ultimate board game cabinet. Oh, you want to play Monopoly? Here, just set it up for Monopoly, put your tokens on, and you're ready to go. You want to play Battletech, same way. You want to play Settlers of Catan, the same way. Or, but if you don't want to deal with the hassle of physical pieces, you could probably go into a token mode. And and doing that for tabletop role-playing, where... It's not as tactile as moving around a little mini, but I mean, you're right. It's more convenient. So I think it's going to be a hybrid of both. People are going to use the mode that works best for them, but both are going to need to be supported.
3: Yeah, I agree. For board games, especially where you've got a static field and you don't have to zoom around. Um, so then then using physical pieces makes perfect sense. You know, the the technology that, that we were developing at Mesa Mundi, which is where DT 20 Pro lives now. Um, was designed for board game and role playing, tabletop use, right? So we were designing touch screens with the intent of being able to handle physical tokens in addition to touches. And the, um, we were working with this company for a long time called Dark Infinity Software, who is this couple who are basically retired and love board games and write board games because they love them. And they you know do some fantastic board game conversions both Official and not official um, that are that are just fun to play on a digital surface, and you know we, we take a couple of tables to Gen Con and put them in public spaces every year, and there are people who come every year not to complete D20 Pro or you know to find out about our latest tech, but they come to play these board games on this digital surface that you know that are otherwise long setup times.
2: Wow. And, and the reason I'm so, like, kind of optimistic about this, because I have like a half a dozen board game apps on my iPad, and they're just absolutely amazing. The touchscreen and, the, and the, the user interface makes all the difference. In fact, one year, we were in one of those long lines at Origins, me and my friends, and we played a game of Settlers of Catan while we were in line, passing my yeah. iPad around. And because they had the foresight not to make it online only, not to make it any kind of or network only, they, they also included a pass and play mode. So you can do that as a single device around and play. So that kind of innovation, you know, I think we'll see in our lifetime. The ultimate game kit had the option for an affordable price to buy the ultimate game kit that would sit in our living room and allow us In the space of a coffee table, i have a thousand board games.
3: So the only thing I'm legally allowed to say is I agree with you. (laughs) I should. Um,
2: I can speculate and do all the details because I don't have any irons on any particular technology (laughs) or company, but (laughs) I I see what you mean.
3: um, I, I just popped a link into the channel for folks who are interested. This is a, this is, some folks who came onto the scene, I think about four years ago, um, maybe a little longer. Tabletopia. This is actually a good implementation of 3D, doing specifically board games. Um, it's it's all online play. Uh, you know, it's basically a board game centric digital tabletop, and it's very well done. You know, they don't um, they do some minimal rules enforcement. Mostly, what they're doing is um, is making sure that the right pieces stick to the right places. And and then you play the game with uh, with rural resources and whatnot at your disposal while you're playing. And, you know, they'll do all the setup and stuff like that. It's it's really slick. it's very well done.
2: I got to mention it's in a similar topic, but it's something different. For those of you don't know, there is a 2D general purpose board game board game program called Va it's free to download it's open source and there are thousands of modules some of questionable legality but <laughs> they have thousands of modules for all kinds of board games and it's multi- you can uh, use it to multiplayer uh, over to play over the the internet with a another opponent so I it's a little it's a little finicky uh, for setup but it is it's it's not arcane. And, and once you have it going, like, for example, uh, that friend I mentioned, uh, we got into Dice Masters. And uh, he lives about a half hour away from me. And we wanted to play a bunch of Dice Masters while we were learning the game. Well, they had a Dice mod- Module on Roll20, so we downloaded and we got a lot of practice in just playing over the internet with Dice Masters. So I recommend checking it. Yep, the Vassal engine.
3: Yeah, yeah, no, Vassal is sweet. I like it a lot. Um, I only posted the GameTopia one uh, because it's it's a successful implementation of 3D, and I've forgotten about Vassal because there's just so much stuff out there.
2: Yeah, Vassal works best with hex encounter or maybe like Axis and Allies type of game. The other one that the uh, the uh, TableTopia like Rampage. Um, even Monopoly with piece, it, it I mean, it, it's better to have a somehow a tactile feel, even if it's virtual, moving stuff around than than moving flat images around a map.
3: Um, the if for for people who are able to withstand the vertigo uh, potential of VR, there's another uh, really interesting one, um, Alt Space VR actually has a massive library of um, card games and board games that and so basically you go into any public room and you can just spawn a card table or board game table and sit down and play anything from you know cards against humanity to um lords of water deep um based off of what what's available and it's very well done it's it's fun and uh they've done a good job of creating a uh, social environment where you can communicate with the other people you're playing with without sort of being engaged with the whole space around you. Uh, so that way you're not, you're not just sitting in like a cacophony of things.
2: So the other guys who are supposed to be
1: talking on this
2: coast to coast, what do you guys think? <laughs>
1: Uh, Personally, I've never played any of these uh, tabletop um, computer systems, so I'm a total novice. I'm just soaking in everything you guys are saying because I have virtually no experience with them.
2: Let me ask you this. Is there anybody that you're still in contact from back in the day that you wish you could game
1: with? Uh, Actually, I'm very lucky in that everyone who I've played with still lives in the area and still gets together and okay. i've known them since 1984 so i'm lucky but yeah there we have only one player who actually moved to north carolina and she does skype in um but i mean their skype is just we set up a computer and she talks and we you know use a uh, either an ipad or something else to show what's going on in terms of the miniatures and the maps but we don't use any of the roll 20 or d20 pro or any of those um systems at all so this is all brand new to me honestly yeah that's i believe that's
2: called like a virtual presence what do you i mean i'm not too up on that but i've known people to do it what do you think of that albert the virtual actually you have a regular face to gaze but one or two of the participants are virtually there
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what I was talking about. I think earlier on, where we'd keep basically a laptop that was our virtual players, our remote players, and they'd just be part of our normal rotation. You know, reserve them space at the table, all that kind of stuff. For all intents and purposes, we interacted with them just like they were physically there. Um, the I, I personally like it. Um, you know, again, this is where it can be tricky, right? If you're if you're a map centric gamer, then using a virtual tabletop helps that process because then you can make sure that your players are seeing the same thing that you're, whether they're local or remote. Um, But you don't have to, you know, you could do webcam. Um, A friend of mine who's actually local here has been playing with his high school buddies for a really long time and they've got this insane top-down camera rig they built um, that just points at his tabletop and then all his remote players are basically calling out like chess type moves, you know, ranger to d four, that sort of thing. Um, and they've they've actually gridded out their his table with letters and numbers, so they can call out their their grid unit uh, and move physical minis in the local game. So you know there are lots of ingenious ways to handle it. Um, the guy who writes uh, Order of the Stick um, did top down. Uh, projection for a while um maybe i'm conflating him with the guy who wrote the d20 srd thing or oh, just
2: speaking of top-down uh projections i saw projectors took a tumble in prices yeah
3: yeah and top-down projection is is pretty interesting um it's a little tricky to get set up right if you um Just a a word of advice to everybody listening. Um, If you do decide to do top-down projection and you have to hang your projector 90 degrees or something along those lines, um, make sure it doesn't overheat. Heat is a big killer for projectors and they like to catch fire rather than just melt. Um, If you can avoid it, which or the way you avoid it is using a mirror and then reflect the video down 90 degrees. So you put the mirror at 45 degrees to the projection. This sounds like personal experience might have had an issue here. Oh, sure. I'm, like I said, our first tables were projection tables. So I burned up a ton of them. Um, we were encapsulating these things in like coffee tables. And, um, and early projectors were loud and obnoxious. And so we had to figure out ways to make them quieter so it didn't drown out the players um, with all the fans. Um, I got to ask,
2: did you cry when one burned up?
3: Yes. Yeah, they were expensive. Um, (laughs) Yeah, fortunately, the before I before we started Mesa Monday. um, The group I was with one of the guys um, loved the ideas of what I was doing and bankrolled all of our first uh, prototype hardware. And so he just showed up with like eight projectors and said, do what you need to with these and don't worry about it. To which I, I nearly cried out of you know, Gratitude, but um, yeah, I was very fortunate with that because at the time, the, that was a lot of dollars in projector equipment, um, of which, fortunately, many of them still exist and are being used today. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, if you do do the top-down projection, um, the mirror that you're looking for to avoid a double image is called a first surface mirror, and you can get them for about 20 bucks. Um and you can get them as acrylic or as a or as a glass mirror. So uh, the reason you want that is if you project into a normal mirror, the reflection is on the back side of the glass, and you actually get a reflection off the front and the back, and so you get like this weird ghosting double image. Um, One of our players recently built a system. I'm looking to see if I can find his image real quick. Um,
0: yeah, here we go. Um,
2: the, the one thing I will, I would like to advocate for for anybody who published materials, please, please make a version of your map available that doesn't have any labels. It, it oh, really yeah. helps. It really helps with the virtual stuff not to have to have your beautiful maps without labels
3: and grid lines i we love grid lines but you know leave the grid lines off and tell us what you want the grid to be <laughs> so that way the scale you know we're happy to to build stuff out to scale uh you know whether it's whether it's professionally like we're doing over d20 pro or even you know your home user but um it's so much easier for somebody to use content on a virtual tabletop if they don't have to worry about whether or not you're using the um the publisher standard um you know uh, uneven aspect ratio grid versus a true photoshop grid and uh it's it just it can be a headache um, mm-hmm. so I did want to say um and this this may be more personal plug than and whatnot but i just did want to comment that um most of our content at this point with d20 pro uh, like all of our new uh 5e stuff and, and the new stuff we're rolling out we actually do all the fog of war with those products so like when we released Tomb of horrors or um or any of the other yawning portal stuff uh, we actually released it with all the fog of war already drawn so that way you just open the maps and it's already built um
2: I got to ask, you know, between you and Roll20 and other, Wizard is doing a lot of digital uh, releases through these platforms. How easy are they to work with with all this stuff? I mean, is it like a now pretty much a bread and butter thing or what?
3: No, it's not easy. Um, You know, the Wizards of the Coast is a publishing company. They really don't understand what we're doing on the digital side. With, I think they actually work better with companies like Roll Twenty and with Fantasy Grounds, where they don't have as much of the programming going on for for the content. Um, so just to give you an idea, like when when you get the uh, the rules through uh, Fantasy Grounds or Roll Twenty, you're mostly getting an SRD that lets you look up rules, and and there's a bit of automation in there but the majority of the content is the text, right?
4: And, mm-hmm.
3: and that's what Wizards, that's actually all that Wizards is actually requesting is that licensees produce the text of their product and charge book prices for it. Um, on our side, that's never been our goal. Um, with like our Player's Handbook, you actually have all of the spells automated so they track initiative or they track rounds, they track uh, area of effect, um you know they they calculate damage uh you know difficulty uh dc um they they factor in damage resistance energy resistance or damage reduction energy resistance and all that kind of fun stuff as well you know so we're we're doing all this programming to sort of build out the automation um and wizards is when when we actually built it i got this uh i got this sort of nasty gram from our contact he's like yeah so why is it taking you guys three months to build this player's handbook? You know, everybody else has finished this in like a couple of weeks. And, and when I showed him what we were doing, he says, well, this is, a, this is fantastic, but this isn't actually what we thought you were building. And, you know, when I, when I applied for our license, I was very clear as to what we were doing. So this was just a case of, they said, oh yeah, yeah, it's another VTT, go for it. Um, and so, yeah, you know, our, our turnaround for some of the core rules is slower um, because of that. But it makes our relationship with Wizards a little harsh because what they really want is for us to just copy the text of things into screen elements and call it done. Um, but that's not how we've rolled our products, and that's not the direction we've been going. So, um, yeah.
2: Well, ben, well then you're, I think you're doing the right thing. Between me and you, because that's what the crawler, you know, I, I had praises for the crawler companion. And, and the reason why is because Goodman Game was generous enough, let them to integrate the text, a lot of the text of the rulebook. So it became a useful tool. So, yeah, it sounds like your guys' setup is it's in the same spirit.
3: Yeah, exactly. We're much more, we're much more interested in um, in building out an actual integration that simplifies the experience rather than just provides a reference. So, uh, so for for complete irony, um we we do have all of that reference data, right? Because all the data is still there. Um it's just that it's actually inline. So if you go and you look at your character and um and you've got a feature on your character like spellcasting ability as a wizard and you double click on it it's going to show you all the details about being a wizard for spell casting and how you calculate all your things and what your spells per level are and and all of that all that text is all the copy is there um it's just that it's just a reference you don't really need that to play because you already can see how many spell slots you've got available and when you go to memorize you can see how many spells you can actually memorize and all that kind of stuff
2: now if you so, don't mind you don't me asking, me asking. How are you guys handling the licensing between referee and player? Does the referee just buy the uh, text and all the players can see it, or everybody participating has to buy the, the book?
3: Nope. So the, the GM hosts content to all connected players. Um, so while the GM session is live, the players have access to all the content that the GM is hosting. Uh, now, that being said, what, they, what a GM doesn't push to the players is the ability to peruse content outside of their character context. So for instance, if you were running Tomb of Horrors, the players won't have access to your monster list or to the module. Um, They'll have access to maps that you share with them. They'll have access to monsters you've revealed to them or they've discovered through dynamic lighting um, and only the data that you allow them to see from that as well. So like they don't just instantly get to look at a monster's character sheet. Um, They just see some filler text about you see a thing that looks like this. Um, the But if you were to, let's say for whatever game purpose you've supplied, you have a player who has uh, you know, a freet heritage and so has a bunch of traits that come from the Affreet monster, then those monster traits would be available to that player to look at and work with off their character sheet.
2: Yeah, to me, that's ideal. You know, yeah. you're, you're, the DM buys the game, and the player and the host the game, and the player sees it. I, no. you know, I, I still have a problem with Fantasy Ground. I mean, even though I think Fantasy Ground does that for their rule set, they don't do that for their software. Each player uh, has to uh, buy a client, or you buy pay a lot more money and buy the ultimate license.
3: Yeah, our model, our pricing model is, you know. It's not overly beneficial to us in the long run um, because we have a buy once, own forever setup. You know, so um, you know we, yeah. Pex points out so fifty dollars gets you a full GM license with four guest seats, um, and you can add more guest seats at ten dollars a piece, right? And the way this works is that once you own them, you own them, and guest seats allow anyone to connect with a free download um, to your tabletop. Or a player could buy a player license so they don't take a guest seat, which is also $10. So, you know, if you've got, so you can sort of split it up however you want. Uh, the, the humor value to this is our pricing model is based off of the average price for a adult gaming group to eat for a night. Um, so how much does it cost for you to buy food for your group that you're going to enjoy? You know, not, not, um, not the least, common denominator for this but you know so we figure 50 bucks is a reasonable price for a five person uh gaming group to you know order subs or pizza and whatnot and and so if we fit into that into that meal price then it should be sort of a no-brainer and and a good deal
2: i just got i'm being bothered by pecs here that we should promote our stuff i just want to say as far as my end i only got one thing to promote this time is i released a vert i added to if you already have my city-state map you already have this but i uh thanks to a gentleman named steve wax who's a uh long time uh judges guild fan he took the time throughout the fall to uh annotate the pdf with sticky with the original text So, if you click on Source or Supply House, you will see the original text that said for Source Supply House. And uh, he also found there were a number of labels on the map that didn't have any entries. So he worked with some people over on Dragon's Foot to come up with entries. I contributed a few, but um, but they did the lion's share. So that is on the map. So um, I'll post a link. But if you haven't gotten my city-state map. There's now a zip file in there that's called city-state with stickies, and you download it, use your PDF reader. Now, just be warned, it can be slow because it's a problem with Adobe, not with the map. If you have a lot of fonts, it can be slow with loading. But other than that, a lot of people have told me it's it's a real nice tool to have to be able to on the map
4: I'm gonna do my promotion real quick because I gotta leave at ten here. Um, Frog God Games, we have a uh, IndieGoGo coming out this month by Casey Christopherson. Uh, Encephalon creatures on the moon or something similar to that. I, I can't even remember the name of it. And uh, we also have Lost Lands campaign setting for the first time ever. Uh, Necromancer Games been around since 2001. They never had a, they've never had a Lost Land setting. It's going to come out. Uh, I think the is February 15th is the Kickstarter beginning. So. That's going to be a really big one. It's going to be about a year delivery time, but it's going to be well worth it. It's going to be the Bible for the Lost Lands. And, uh, to- oh, and Total Con will feature uh, Bill Webb, Zach Glazer, and Jim Walper from our company. So if you're going to be in New Jersey area, go to Total Con uh, two weeks from now.
1: Uh, actually, Total Con is in Massachusetts, not in New Jersey, uh, Mike. So just to correct, actually Mike stole a lot of my thunder because we both work for Frog God Games. But... Um, you know, right Jersey, in the... it's all
4: in the northeast. I don't I don't know that area. Although I was just in Maine. I was just in Maine, so I know Maine, but you know, everything else is just kind of this big blob up there. So it's oh, it's the no. same thing, right? Massachusetts and New Jersey is the same thing, right?
1: No, no, we beg to differ. <laughs> our state motto was welcome to New Jersey, no go home. But...
4: <laughs> and and
3: our state motto <laughs> is give us your taxes and drive badly. Oh. <laughs> Massachusetts, but, sorry. <laughs>
1: Anyway, just to finish up uh, for promotions, uh, we're going to be doing the Lost Lands campaign setting. I wrote parts of it, so that'll be coming out, and um, I'm not sure what the next big Anchor product is. Mike, if you remember what it is after that, I'm not 100% sure. We're going to be doing a lot of Indiegogo um, adventures over the next at least eight to nine months. I think there's like seven or eight in the hopper uh, last when I talked to Zach. And personally I am doing my own new project for Frog God Games it is not going to be something that was previously released it is totally 100% new material so
3: So um I will I will jump in with one last thing from the promotion standpoint um we do have a add-on service coming out for D20 Pro for remote character management, um, specifically to help players um, manage characters between sessions. Uh, I can't go into full details yet because those details are actually being worked out this weekend and and next week, but um, this ties in heavily with our Hero Lab integration and will basically provide a mechanism for players to own their own rule sets if they want to and then be able to build and manage, you know, libraries of characters to bring to the table, um, whether it's, you know, us or Roll20
5: or something else. So, could be very interesting. Cool, I will unmute the audience for Q&A time. And if you are shy and don't want to talk, you can type a question in and one of our hosts will read it out loud and answer.
3: Well, in the silence, I'll take advantage and say, hey, so um, with Lost Lands and all this coming out, we should talk about that because uh, I think the last thing I personally built out for D20 Pro before taking over developer role was some of the uh, the necromancer game stuff um, for the uh, what was it the wizard wizard's amulet
1: modules? Oh, that's pretty far back. That's, it is. Way it really now. is. It's way back.
0: <laughs>
3: I've been doing this for a while now.
5: <laughs> All right. Everybody should be unmuted. So free. Feel free to
0: ask these guys questions. Yeah, I'll actually, I'll actually. If
4: anybody has any frog or questions, I'll actually be here a little past ten, so I'll be here for a while. All
0: right, all right. Well, I've got a question, Tom. Are you, are you gonna, Tom? Are you going
1: to Gary Con or not? I am going to Gary Con. I will be there. Awesome. All right. Can't wait to see it. Yep. So,
2: Same. Uh, well, speaking of Gary Khan, some of my products will be there with uh, Blackblade Publishing. So, if you want a physical copy of The Waterlands of High Fantasy, Fantastic Waterlands Beyond, the city state map, as well as the Waterland map I've done so far, they will be there. I'm still working on Waterlands of the Magic Realms, taking a little longer. The writing's taking a little longer, but it will be out this. Week. Hopefully, I'll be all done with it by May, in time for North Dakota.
3: So the Poxbox was asking us if, um, if we do this full time, and you know maybe this is better answered uh, globally for each of our our fields. Um, you know, for me personally, um, D twenty Pro is one hundred percent. You know. Uh, I do some contracting work as well under Mesa Mundi and still do some of the hardware design work. But my core programming task is D20 Pro, you know, and then uh, AR, VR work for contracts for expos.
2: So I got one for you. For you guys doing um, uh, product development, um, in the last two years, we've been seeing lots of things. where they're doing uh, multiple system development for a particular products. So you'll see a product come out and it'll be out for, say, Pathfinder, but also for 5e. Um, and you were mentioning Lost Lands earlier, which I'm hugely interested in, by the way. Um, uh, will
1: you be doing that for that type of product? And is that, uh, obviously, it's more labor intensive to do that, but. Um, is that, you know, something you enjoy doing? You like facilitating, you know, uh, multiple systems and that kind of thing? Well, Los Angeles campaign setting is gonna be a, a strictly system neutral product. So there's not gonna be a Pathfinder version or a 5 e version or a, a swords and wizardry version. It's strictly gonna be system neutral. There's gonna be no um, gaming statistics as far as I know in it, uh, personally, and Mike, if you can interrupt me if I'm wrong, but I think going forward, most products other than maybe some smaller ones are going to be probably just 5e in Swords and Wizardry. Some Pathfinder maybe for the smaller things like the Indiegogo adventures, but I don't think we'll be doing Pathfinder for another very, very large product.
4: No, we won't. Uh, well, one of the reasons is we're waiting for Pathfinder 2.0 to come out, and and Since it's not out yet, we don't we don't know if it's going to be successful or not. Uh, Paizo doesn't even know because Paizo doesn't have it out yet. So it doesn't make any sense for us to make Pathfinder products this time uh, using the newer rules or even the older rules. Um, Now we are doing our Indiegogos. We are having limited Pathfinder runs. So the people who are still huge Pathfinder fans, that's the way to go. Um, Our last two Indiegogos, uh, we did Pathfinder versions of Invino Gigantus. Actually, I'm sorry, our last three invito gigantis uh, Orcus, christmas and the last one the raven scar so we are doing path that's the only pathfinder we're doing right now and that's mostly to reward the loyalty of some of our oldest fans but going forward um we're honestly going to wait to see what pathfinder 2.0 does but you know it's looking like until we we see how that's doing we're not going to be doing any pathfinder products going forward
5: Well, I have a question on um, the VCT spectrum. When, what, What's the cutting edge that everybody's horse racing to right now between all the companies? Like it was dynamic lighting, but I think everybody's caught up there. But what's the new get it before anybody else does?
3: Uh, let me answer um, AIOU real quick, and then I'll answer that as well. Um, so he asked if we plan on streamlining the UI for D20 Pro um, in you know, UI updates slated. And yes, the answer is yes. It's. It's behind, we're currently um, working on a Steam launch uh, so we can take advantage of Steam networking. And once that's out the door, we're gonna turn around and start a dedicated UI revamp so that we can uh, handle uh, all sorts of other things than, than what we currently handle. So we've got like rotating maps and things like that. Um, so in terms of cutting edge, um, you know, motion maps is a pretty big deal um you know being able to support that is is just beautiful uh yeah skins would be for the win um the in terms of the 2d space being able to support animated maps uh animated elements um integrate more of the uh sort of typical um flashiness that you see in modern video game spaces on top of your your digital map is something that we're seeing more and more requests for, um, and this is where hybrid 2D, 3D becomes very, very attractive. And so, yeah, with with fog of war and shadow casting basically nailed down, and uh, you know there are definitely still some some modifications and tweaks to do, uh, such as auto detection and whatnot. But yeah, I think the the main thing is actually in the shinies. Um, and finding that happy ground between uh, 2D and 3D without without the sacrifice that we were
0: talking about earlier. Uh, I wouldn't say
3: the board game companies are resisting technology. Um, again, I, there are some things I can't specifically talk to, but I can guarantee you that uh, a fair number of the very large companies right now are embracing technology, but the lead time on that, we're looking at, you know, year to two years before we'll see the full technology uh, start to reach the public. Um, You know, our own, our own tables are just still price prohibitive because building large format touch displays um, that you can, putting it, putting an LCD horizontal is also prone to fires as I mentioned with projectors being flipped 90 degrees. Um, And so, you know, You can choose to put your own TV on its back, but they're designed to cool through convection, which pulls air in from the bottom and pops it out the top. Um, So the, yeah, exactly. We don't flip tables, we set them on fire. Um, And so our screens end up being more expensive because they're 24 seven commercial displays designed for being laid flat. And so it has to use a different cooling technology, which is not common. And so that, that ends up making a, like a 42 inch screen, about $3,000 um, for a touch display, which is just out of the range of your average gamer. You know, it's a, it, it takes it beyond the scope of like a nice monitor or an expensive monitor to uh, just an expensive, a very expensive piece of equipment.
5: Uh, DOS machine has a question.
0: Yes. Uh, you're lit up, but nothing's coming out. Alright, who cast the silent spell? Technology, it's failed us again.
4: Hey, can you hear me now? Yeah. 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 Okay, um, silly Discord. Uh, so you you mentioned uh, having some challenges working uh, with some of the larger shops that might be less technically inclined, uh, and I understand that you know as a business you're you're figuring you know uh, cost effectiveness of the amount of time that you're spending uh, developing things for people. Um, What about, um, is there a possibility for any kind of exposed interface for some of the smaller outfits that might be more technical, whether that be an SDK, or just a simple scripting interface? Is that a
3: possibility? Yeah, we actually expose the entire development stack to the public. So if somebody wants to build their own custom rule set, they can, we have a full JavaScript scripting library in the application. In our, in our rules library, as well as a flow-based programming system for making spells and features and all that kind of fun stuff. So all the tools we're using to build the products for the public or for, you know, for sale, we expose all those tools to anyone who wants access to them. And we're constantly doing uh, Q&A and tutorials via our Discord channel all day long.
2: Now, with T <laughs> 20 Pro, do I have to punch a hole through my router like I do with fancy ground?
3: For for the next month, you don't. Um, and if I can get the Steam integration done, it'll be a pretty much a seamless rollover as so long as you're willing to use Steam to launch. Um, we we were using a pub sub publish subscribe networking system, which basically is like talking to a web page, and that was working great. But the company changed their pricing model, and now what was a fifty dollar bill that we were just willing to accept on our own is like a 1500 to $2,000 a month bill.
0: Oh, that good Lord.
3: is not okay to accept on our own. And I, I'm trying, trying very hard to put us in a position where we never have to ask for a subscription fee for our core application, you know, for D20 Pro. Uh, we have other products that may go a subscription model because they're web-based, like online,
2: so. Fair enough.
0: There's a question for Tom in chat.
1: I ended up coming about because um, I actually got involved with Frog God games from razor coast. And after I had done that, they had said, well, we want you to do some more stuff for you. And we're thinking about what you do, what you can do. So when they looked, I guess, and figured out what I did in the past, I'd actually worked for a company in 3.0 called bastion press. And I had done these terrain books for them called into the green and into the black. And I guess they figured out that would be something that would be good for me. Cause had done it before. So I did end up uh, having to do a lot of the research again or on new topics. Um, and it was really just kind of trying to boil things down to their simplest components from the real world and to make them gamer friendly. Uh, there, unfortunately, there's not one book that tells you how a desert works or how the grasslands work, so you kind of have to go into various products and you end up reading all kinds of crazy things, stuff put out by survivalists and all kinds of other stuff, but it's it takes a lot of time and it's just a lot of reading and a lot of searching uh, for some of that information, so just a lot of hard work and a lot of reading. I'm gonna jump
5: in here. Do um, you have an announcement? And one of the benefits of being a live show, you'll get it before the general audience does. Uh, D20 Pro, they're gonna be doing some, what we're gonna be calling uh, a showcasing of people's products here in uh, Tinker's Tavern. And we're looking for playtesters to jump in on that. So for example, uh, from Frog Eye Games, they have an adventure, they wanna showcase an encounter on that, uh, D20 Pro, and also Virtua Ross is also gonna be helping with this. Um, another VTT company, we're still working out the details there, but for D20 Pro, they're going to be building it, uh, the maps and the encounter, whatever, and be able to show that uh, to promote the product better, as well as the VTT side of things. Uh, just as an example, um, like in Vino Virtus, or whatever it's called, the Latin word one, uh, it'll show it a giant encounter in there, and you'll be able to see it on the VTT format and all that. There we go, Vino Gigantis. So... Uh the benefits being if you're interested in being a play tester, uh go ahead and message me and uh you're recording people, yeah, you should have been here on the live show.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I might be messaging you um, so let's so I had a question from the pox box um so in terms of competition, the hardware end they're not a whole lot. For, for digital tables, uh, like what we're doing for consumers, but definitely on the, um, on the commercial side. So a lot of the table technology that we built has commercial applications. And so for that, there's, there's a fair amount of competition. Uh, most of that's you know
0: targeting museums, expo halls, um, malls, that sort of thing.
3: You know, ironically, Pizza Hut ran an ad for an interactive uh, table a while back that was really slick, where they show these folks like building a pizza while they're sitting around the table and then playing some games. Um, we had actually tried to market the hardware to uh, Pizza Hut, Krispy Kreme, a couple of other places that had been asking for this kind of tech. And, um, and, it, we'd make it all the way up to the very top of the corporate chain for the project. Uh, tons of soft approvals, but we never got a hard approval for any actual builds. So, uh, yeah, exactly. It's like
5: EverQuest where you could do Slash Pizza and the Pizza Hut app would load. Yes, but
3: for me, my, all my memories of EverQuest will be the giant like field of bodies under the Elf starting grounds. Um, and so I just can't imagine eating pizza where they've got that many corpses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, the the people I mentioned earlier, Dark Infinity Software, we've been working with them, building out all these games that are quick play board games, right? So you could go into your Starbucks or your Pizza Hut or whatever, order your pizza, um, and then sit down and play some games and actually engage with the person across from you, while also having uh, having this, your digital order being managed. Um, honestly, what happened, that I think what killed that as a, as a direction is the tabletop tablets. You see a lot of these mini tablets where they are charging you for time to play games on them. You see them at like Chili's and Applebee's and these kind of places um, and every restaurant around Gen Con when Gen Con's there. Um, And so with that with that monetization model added to the mix and the lower cost hardware, it basically meant that the the embedded screen in your restaurant went out the window. Yeah, exactly. We got (laughs) Betamax. That's also true. Um, But. The people who are so, Jaws says they're unenjoyable. You know, a lot of those games really are pretty bad. Um, they're they're basically the reject flash games that you get from the flash sites that are also great for getting viruses, and um, and you know you get these sort of these really bad, not very intuitive games, but this is where you could see in our experience, what happened is we go up the chain and we get to the top levels and they were more interested in what is the bottom line cost rather than what is the user experience gonna be like. Um, What we discovered is that for us, we really care about our user experience and whether an experience is enjoyable and memorable. And so instead of trying to market into that space with our hardware, we started doing the expo space working with companies who are building out uh, expo experiences for everything from pharmaceutical to like Salesforce type companies and stuff like that. And so we don't get a lot of those jobs, which is great because it means I get to focus on D20 Pro more, but when we do, they're fun, right? We actually build enjoyable games that talk about rather banal topics, um, but the people who play them, remember them. That's exactly true.
5: I got a question for uh, Tom or Bad Mike. Um, are y'all going to be doing more uh, card packs and stuff, like newer ones? Uh, like, I know there's a lot in the S&W Spectre, but are there going to be 5e ones? I know y'all did some for uh, the Blight as well, those for the creatures and stuff. Um, I
4: can say that I know of none on the horizon, uh, unfortunately. Um, uh, I don't know why, because uh, they've been very popular, and they... They sell pretty well. Um, but uh, yeah, we just, we don't have any uh, for the near future that I can think of.
0: Unless of that I don't know about.
5: Well, here's one for Rob. Uh, Rob, what's the one thing you're wanting uh, in a BGT that you don't currently have?
2: What is the
0: one thing I want? In BTT? Your dream no, feature. No, no,
2: no. Something like the Caller's Companion built in, and modify, and with an SDK. Basically, I know Roll Twenty has tables and stuff. But it would be nice to load up Traveler and say, I want an auto rifle for this character, and it fills in everything. Or if I go to, you know, I know there, I know D20 Pro has some of that with D&D 5E going, where you pick a class feature for a, a fighter, and it just appears on your character sheet. Um, you know, that's... Yeah, I like to see that for other systems like GURPS and, and, and Traveler are just a more integrated version. So I don't have to type as much stuff in. Doesn't yeah. seem like that is, it's It's getting there with the most popular systems on the market. Just, I guess it just needs to be followed through for some of the more less popular systems. But uh, science fiction token, people need to be drawing the top-down tokens like Devin Knights more. I can't find. I mean, it's a little better. They got some Star Trek out there, thanks to you know the recent Star Trek RPG that was released. But uh, compared to fantasy, it's just a wasteland with uh, science fiction. That's uh, especially for particular settings like uh, Traveller. the a biggie. That, that I feel the lack of. I had to make my own token with token. Um, smaller market, guess, bigger guess, wallets. I'm
5: stealing. Yeah, it. you know
2: what? You know what? Just just some thoughts need to be put into the the to the science fiction genre, to the uh horror genre, and uh maybe some modern stuff as well, which will go with horror. But you know, make sure that the basics are covered in in the various art libraries that the various VTs uh, are, are out there. It seems to be too spotty right now compared to fantasy.
3: Yeah, this is where Starfinder and Esper Genesis are are helping a lot, right? You're getting a lot of new art for for those, which is usable for things like Traveler and whatnot. Um, the the other thing to keep in mind is that because your your modern uh, your modern games and your sci-fi games can actually pull from other resources, right? You can actually pull from uh, uh, there's I'm trying to remember the name of this uh, portfolio site, um, but anyway, you can pull art from from actual game developer uh, content as well. Like I expect that uh, Cyberpunk 2077 is going to result in a massive amount. Of influx of cyberpunk style art uh, into just the general interwebs, you know this isn't the the official stuff though, you know bundles and whatnot. But um, I know Arknight has a fair amount, and there's a couple of other artists who are currently working in good sci-fi as well. But I, for the life of me, I can't remember names.
5: All right, gonna do last call for questions. If you got them, ask. Them.
2: You know what? I got a question. So, you may or may not know, I wrote Black Marsh, but what would you guys need? And I guess the more general sense, what did VTT publishers need to make a setting, as opposed to an adventure, useful for a VTT? I haven't put much thought into it, but I'm kind of now that I think about it, I'm kind of curious to hear what your answer is. If I take something like a Black Martian, how would it be? What it needs? What do I need as an author to make it more friendly to a VTT?
3: So, from from our context, I can speak. You know fairly well, but I'm not sure about the other ones in terms of how they can represent things. So I'll assume everyone can sort of do what we're doing and we'll go from there, right? So, sure. overland maps are fantastic, um, but being able to put in uh, discoverable details, map markers, things like that, that can provide uh, sort of the meta content um, and and even potentially linking, right? So having the idea that you've got a city over in this location on your overland map and being able to link that to a map that actually contains the city or contains some uh, tavern or specific uh, landmark. Um, the the details about, because a VTT is mostly about the visual aspect when when we're talking about representing the shared space, a lot of it comes down to the art. But something that I think is overlooked by almost all of the products currently out there is that a VTT is actually really a glorified picture viewer. What that means to me, and when I'm running my own games, is that I intersperse maps with scenic imagery. Um, Like I I ran this, uh, I ran a Spelljammer game where my players spent three sessions doing investigation on the docks. Right, Uh, they were the rocket brawl and they're spending time on the docks. And so I had this uh, this image of some deck hands moving boxes around and and whatnot. And that was the scenic image on our map view for those sessions because they were purely role playing sessions. So having things that capture the feel of your environment imagery wise, they don't have to be maps. They can actually be just interesting content um so what,
2: what you say to make my black marsh truly usable i should have a lot of lot of lot more subscale maps so well, so, so so as a package when they go to say the village of uh, elmstar they have a map to refer to
3: sure but what i'm actually saying is that when they go to the when they go to the village of elmstar um let's say that the village of elmstar is renowned for its wheat fields so you have a nice, like, perspective artist rendering of the wheat fields with the village off in the distance.
2: Okay, so to have a map and uh, something That's that evokes the a visual that evokes the area.
3: That's right. Yeah, because when when we think back to the tried and true theater of the mind experience, um, it was the box text and the the imagery we could evoke in, in everyone's mind that really drove home that, that experience. When, when you use a VTT, you're fighting a little bit against the, the ability of the mind to imagine for itself because you're providing a lot of visual input. And so if we can help bring you back by providing some framework, even if it's simple black and white art, right? Um, that can help a whole lot in, in theme setting and, uh, and giving the right feel for a space. Um, you know, you think about the, the original entrance to Tomb of Horrors, and that entrance itself is more interesting than perhaps the entryway from a top down map perspective. And so, you know, those are the kind of things where having landmarks or things that are representative of a space really help to evoke the imagination of your player Um, for settings. I find those to be far more important than specifically detailed maps Um, for, for getting the feel of a setting in place. Obviously detailed maps are still very helpful.
2: (laughs) So something like this, that the, this is, this is from the artist who, from his blog, he he does a lot of horn illustration. And this is, you know harn is very renowned for its top down map very uh good looking but very precise as well but then re- in recent years they started doing stuff like this which kind of gets a picture of what you're actually looking at
3: yeah exactly yeah you know this this gives you a better sense um i don't i don't know if you've done uh any travel right and so when you go to a new place when you see the place from a distance and you get a sense of a place, you know, it's landmarks, it's uh, it's ecology, it, it helps firm that memory in your mind of what that place is going to be like. So if you can provide that hook, that mental hook, and then provide the experience in the place, your player is going to have a lot stronger association with the space than if all they ever saw was a, uh, a technical rendering of the space. A flat technical map,
2: yes. I see your point. Yeah. Guess I have to learn the draw as well as do cartography. <laughs> <laughs> um
3: well, you know, the thing is that this is a case where it's it's also just a matter of um sort of finding a nice compromise. Um, it I don't know if you've ever if you do any ISO maps or that kind of thing, um, because you could accomplish a lot of the same sense with an ISO view that you would get with your you know, with with like the images that you that are being shown here, but yeah, these are nice. But
2: um, what what's pretty interesting about this artist, which probably would help me if I ever try to do such a thing, is he uses a program called SketchUp. He takes the two D harm map. If you notice down below, there's that green blur. Yep. Well, that's the harm map, the top down harm map that they provide. He mm-hmm. uses that as a surface in SketchUp, and then he builds up the scene, rotates it. It's his, uh, I'll link to his blog post so people watch the videos if they want. But, uh, it, it, uh, he can rotate it to get the angle that he, he, he really likes. And then once he gets that, he takes a screenshot and does the renders and paints the actual
3: drawing. Exactly. Yeah. And this, this actually, um, One of our vendors, Monkey Blood Designs, does a lot of SketchUp art as well as his top-down line art maps, and so he and I have done a lot of experimenting in Unity, where we've blended the top-down line art and SketchUp models to create these very interesting, poseable, you know, or view changeable 3D scenes. Um, It it can create a very interesting and novel look that I personally find very attractive. What's interesting, you could take something like this, you could take the top down, and if you actually have a recognizable 2D map underneath it, so let's say you change your view angle so you're looking down a little further and you can see your 2D map, mm-hmm. and then you have these 3D elements that are representing uh, key components of the map, things of interest, you know, uh, POI, points of interest, right? Um Switching from switching context is going to feel more natural to your player. From from what I'll refer to as like the bard's tale map, where you've got these are the various locations on the map, and then actually getting into the nitty gritty of uh, you know measuring you know the dungeon map. You know, or now we're caring about whether they're five foot squares or ten foot squares, and you know, where's the bend, things like that. Yeah, I like this.
2: Yeah, video, go to the blog and watch the videos where he zoomed around the map. <laughs> it's kind of cool.
5: Well, I'd like to thank all of our hosts for coming in. This was a very cool show.
3: I lost you there for a second, Pex.
5: So uh, I was just thanking you all for coming in. It was a very interesting show.
2: No problem. Glad to be here.
5: Yeah, thanks for having us. Um,
3: I want to drop one more link on folks in relation to that topic. And then this is a 3D. It's based on a 2D city generator, but this is the 3D version uh, that Tay sent me recently. Taytor who's in the channel with us.
0: That's uh, pretty slick.